than Chad than me and I wanted to say that we are so gra uh, grateful that you get to spend the morning with us and you get to tune in with us this morning as you know on March 12 our governor ordered that all large gatherings should be canceled or or postponed and as a church we want to be prudent and we want to be wise and we want to contribute to the healing of our community and our country. Therefore, we decided to stop gathering in person as a church, at least for the next few Sundays, along with our sister churches in our community. But that doesn't mean that we are stopped being the church or that we're going to stop gathering as a church. All we're doing is changing locations. Instead of gathering together in person, what we're doing is gathering, gathering together through this venue. So once again, we are so thankful for the technology that the Lord has granted, has allowed us to have, that allowed us to be church even when we are not together in person. Therefore, I want to invite you and encourage you to continue to gather online um, so we can worship together, so we can continue to be edified together. I, I also want to invite you to stay connected, either through our website or through social media. And lastly because we're still the church, and we must continue to function as a church, I want to invite you to do three things. Number one, I want to invite you to continue to pray. Please pray for our community and our country and our government. Please continue to pray for the church. As a church, we believe in the power of prayer, and we believe that prayer changes things. Number two, I want to remind you that as a church, we are salt and light. We have this amazing opportunity to love and serve our neighbors. And number three, I want to invite you to please continue to support the church financially. If you haven't done this before, this is a great opportunity for you to start giving online. All you have to do is go to our website, wittenbible.org slash give, and you can set everything up. Now I want to invite uh, Pastor Chad so you can pray for us. Good morning, church. My name's Chad Lowe. I'm the pastor at our Streamwood campus. As we gather together online, would you bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are unchanging. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, you are faithful and your steadfast love endures forever. Lord, I pray over our community. I pray over our nation. I pray over our world. Lord, I pray for healing. I pray for restoration. Lord, we pray that the coronavirus would subside. We pray that our church would be unified. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. 
We pray that as we worship together online and as we worship together as your church across the globe, Lord, that we would be the salt and light to our communities. Lord, that we would be the ambassadors of justice, that we would serve because of the tremendous service that we have received from you, Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would care for our community in love because we have received unconditional love from you. And Lord, that you would be glorified, that we would be filled with awe and adoration and praise as we worship together, as we continue to unite together as your church, your bride. Be glorified in this service. I want to pray over Pastor Rob as he communicates the truth from your word, Lord, that our identity in you is unshakable. Lord, that in you we have a name, in you we have a purpose, in you we have life. So Lord, I pray that as we worship together, as we read from your holy word, that we would be filled with a love for you, that we would overflow that love to others, and that you would be glorified in all that we say and do. Lord, let the words of our mouths, let the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you. You are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. I know what you are thinking. You are thinking, I kind of like this. I like pajama church. And let me just say to you, we have three weeks at least where we will be exclusively online. And we believe, as Hannibal and Chad um, have prayed about and mentioned, that this is by far the best thing we can do as a church. But here's the way this is going to work. It's going to work if for the next couple Sundays you take this online venue as seriously as you take church in person. That together we might come together, worship, respond to the teaching of God's Word. So let's do that together. Now this is week five in our True Identity series. We are looking at our significance, our security, our identity in Christ. And I can't think of anything more useful right now in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic. Because true Christians in times of turbulence know that their identity, their security, their confidence isn't in their circumstances, it's not in the stock market, it's not in our jobs, it's not in how many piles of toilet paper we have amassed at our homes. It's in our identity in Jesus. In Jesus. One of my favorite Old Testament passages that deals with our identity as followers of Christ is found in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 49. Let's look at it. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Now, this is a rhetorical question, and the answer is, of course not. So God is speaking, and God continues and says, Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. What an incredible statement of God's faithfulness, uh, God's love. If you are a Christian, your picture is on God's refrigerator. But here, we have much more of a personal statement. 
If you are a Christian, God has engraved you on the palms of his hands. God's not going to forget about you. God's not going to abandon you in a time of turbulence, volatility, or, or a, a difficulty. Uh, let the world fear. You as a believer have nothing to fear. God has engraved you on the palm of his hand. A metaphor for how secure you are, how protected you are, how loved you are by the living God. Now this morning we come to Ephesians chapter 4. And we are looking at not just our identity in Christ, but we're looking at our identity as believers, as the church of Jesus Christ. And we have a wonderful passage before us. We're going to pick it up in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. And rather than reading this long passage up front, I'm going to take different parts of it as we kind of travel our way through this. So what we are going to do is we're going to look at five different habits of healthy churches. Now these are habits of the heart that are rooted in our identity as individual followers of Christ. And so let's begin with the first heart habit. Every member commits to their calling. This is Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. I love this verse. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Every believer, every extraordinary church understands. They, they are gripped by this reality, reality that each and every one of us have a, has a calling. Uh, it's not merely priests or ministers that have our calling, but all of us as believers in Christ have a calling every bit as important as any priest, any pastor, any missionary, any evangelist. And what this means is that wherever you are, whatever you are doing, It's sacred, whether it's changing diapers or cleaning toilets, whether it's going to work or returning from work, whether it's being a good friend or sitting with somebody, spending time with somebody who's really hurting, who's really overcome with fear, anxiety, or disappointment. Now, typically here at Wheaton Bible Church, we gather on Sunday mornings. We are postponing that for at least the next three weeks. But we gather on Sunday mornings. Why? To scatter during the week. In other words, we come together on Sunday mornings to huddle together, but then we execute the plays wherever we are, whatever we are doing throughout the week. And so we scatter during the week as public disciples with a public calling sent into the world to live public lives, serving a public Savior who also lived a public life and died a public death. Now I say that because you may think I have really nothing to offer. 
But look at the verse. To be a believer is to have received a calling, a supernatural calling from the living God. To be a part of God's global purposes, God's global plans. Now think about it. Early on, nobody probably thought King David would amount to much. Or later, Queen Esther. Nobody early on thought the disciples of Jesus would be special. But each of them have received a calling from God. And I want to suggest, as, as I think about this, uh, that much of our problem today as followers of Christ isn't that we lack compassion, it's that we lack courage because we lack confidence in our call. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God never, God never intended you to merely be an object of his love, but an instrument of his love. But there's something else I want you to notice here. Paul is pleading with us. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy. Paul is calling us to act. Now let me parse that. Yes, God is totally sovereign in our lives, in a way that everything that happens to us happens according to his plan. But when Paul urges us to live a life worthy, uh, Paul is telling you, you are 100% responsible to live out your calling. And therefore, your choices determine the extent to which you actually live it out especially when things go upside down. I mean, if you look at the first part of this verse, things were upside down for Paul. I mean, Paul says he was in prison. And therefore, in times of turbulence, like what we're going through now, we need to redouble our efforts to be in the Word, to be in prayer, to be in community, in, in small communities, at least right now. So that we can honor God in the different circumstances of life. Uh, the different areas that he has called us to. The different situations he has placed us in. So God has given us this incredible, supernatural, beautiful calling. And that means you have a calling to your school, you have a calling to your job, you have a calling to your family, you have a calling to your spouse, you have a calling to your church, you have a calling to your community, you have a calling to your extended family. And to the extent we as believers understand this, we will be an extraordinary church. And I want this for Wheaton Bible Church. I happen to believe that Ephesians chapter 4 gives us a picture of exactly who God wants us to be today, right now, in this moment of great challenge. 
So I'm going to say it again. Why in the world are we fearful? Why in the world are we scared? We've been called by God. And we have a significance, we have a purpose, we have an identity that could not be more amazing. So that's the first habit of the heart. That's the first commitment. Our second commitment is to Christ-likeness. And this is verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, I don't know about you. I have a supposition, but I know relative to myself, that nothing in this verse comes naturally for me. It just doesn't. I also know that when there are problems in my marriage, it's usually because I'm falling short in one of these four areas. So let's take a moment. Paul begins by saying, be completely humble. Why? Because pride makes us irritable. Pride makes us demanding. Pride makes us self-centered. Pride eats at Jesus' command to deny yourself just as cancer eats at a healthy body. Those of us who have control problems have pride problems. One of the things, one of the areas that I hate in my life, one of the things I hate about myself is sometimes I can just be really defensive. It's pride. But notice Paul doesn't merely say be humble. He says be completely humble. Healthy churches, that's what this section is about. Extraordinary churches are made up of people who, hear me, consistently crucify their arrogance. Paul goes on, and he says, uh, be gentle. (laughs) Gentleness makes you the type of person that people want to be around because they feel safe. They feel protected. They feel secure. Uh, Gentleness is is to relationships what fabric softener is to your laundry, to your clothes. It takes the sparks out. It takes the electricity out. Patience. We tend to believe today in some circles here in the West that patience is for losers. I mean, I'm so busy. I got to get ahead. I got to push, push, push. But the reality is You and I will never enjoy relationships with flawed people unless we're willing to wait, to be patient. And finally, we come to bearing with one another in love. In love. But notice, bearing. Bearing suggests you're realistic. You understand, starting with yourself, that we are sinful, self-centered, fallen people. That um, like cracked ice, we have sharp, jagged edges. That we hurt one another. And yet Paul commands, bear with one another in love. But we have to bear uh, uh, because of the reality of the disposition of our hearts. 
Bearing with one another in love is just exactly what God did with unbelieving Israel in the wilderness. It's just what Jesus did with his fumbling disciples. It's what Paul does with the church at Corinth. In spite of their sinfulness, their immorality, their hostility toward one another, their fractionalism and, and, and division. As a matter of fact, if you, have, if you think about it, it really isn't surprising that the most famous statement in history on love was addressed to the church at Corinth. What does bearing with one another look like? I love what Paul says in verse 5, 1 Corinthians 13. Bearing with one another... In love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. And you get over it. It keeps no record of wrongs. Healthy churches, healthy Christians don't deny interpersonal problems. They transcend them. They're quick to forgive. They're patient. They're regularly welcoming and inviting and investing in people, uh, new people, people that are different uh, than them. They give grace to all people, and boy, do they pray. We bear with one another in love. Now, I want you, I'll say it again, I want you to know these are four commands. God is 100% sovereign in making you like Jesus Christ. And one day, when we are before Jesus, we will be perfect. But these are commands. You are 100% responsible for your character. So, let's go on to habit number three. Every member in a healthy church commits to unity, to unity. Now, this is verses 3 through 6, so let's look at this. Paul says, be casual about this. No, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope. When you were called... One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now let's go back to verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Notice Paul doesn't say merely be unified. Paul says make every effort. In other words, in the same way you make every effort to be an excellent employee, or an excellent employer, in, in the same way that you make every effort to be an excellent student, an excellent athlete, to be an excellent parent, an excellent spouse, an excellent friend. Paul is saying, lay it all down for the unity of the church. Make every effort to be a unifier, not a disunifier. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have uh, disagreements but it has everything to do with how we handle those. So the command is in verse 3, but then beginning in verse 4, all the way through verse 6, we have the theology underneath, the, the, the basement 
for that command. And the theology is fundamentally spiritual. The reason we make every effort to be unified is because we are one in Jesus Christ. It's not because we all look alike. It's not because we are all the same socioeconomically. It's not because we have the uh, same skin color, background, education. It's not because we all love motorcycles or love tattoos or love the same music. No, it's a spiritual thing. We believe the same thing about Jesus. We are being transformed by the same Holy Spirit. We are dependent on the same one Father. Right after I came to Christ in college, it was at the end of a spring semester, and I immediately went overseas to summer school in the country of Austria. And because I didn't know any better, and because I'd been a Christian for all of five weeks or so, I immediately started a Bible study. Now, none of the students knew one another. We were all from different colleges all around the country. And we were all actually at different points spiritually. I mean, I was a brand new Christian. I knew enough spiritually to be dangerous. But I got to tell you, by the end of that summer, we experienced a phenomenal unity in Jesus and in one common creed, one common confession, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one Father, one Son, one Holy Spirit. So, verse 1 is about our calling, verse 2 about our character. Um, actually, verses 3 through 6 are about our conduct. Now let me go on to the fourth habit. Every member commits to using their gifts, and I'm going to use the term gifts broadly here to include spiritual gifts, but more than that. And here we come to a, a, a longer paragraph. Let's pick it up in verse 7. Paul continues. Now the word but here, which indicates contrast, is there because Paul is now moving from our unity to our diversity, from all of us to each of us. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Uh, this sounds like what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Incredible passage. I'm going to spend just a little more time uh, on this. Let's go back to verse 7. Each one of us has received grace. Each one of us, grace has been given. Now, I want to clarify something for you. We tend to look at this word grace and think Paul's talking about saving grace. He's not talking about saving grace here. He's talking about serving grace because he defines it in the next verse, verse 8, when he uses the word gifts. So Paul is talking about the saving grace God gives us and then the serving grace that we enjoy and share with others. 
Now, I happen to think grace here refers to our talents, to our spiritual gifts, our temperament, our circumstances, our experiences, and all those things cluster together uh, to explain what Paul means here by grace. Each one of us, grace has been given. And in this context, he's talking about gifts. But you know what our problem, church, is? Our problem is we wanted the benefits of saving grace without the demands, uh, without the hassles, without the responsibilities of serving grace. So over time, what is happening in the church in in North America is while we attend, even though we attend less frequently, we don't serve. We spectate rather than participate. And I just want to say to you a thousand times, no. God has given each and every one of us gifts, graces, to serve the world, starting with the church. Now let's go on. I want you to see three ways in this passage a church that understands and is characterized by serving grace fleshes it out. Paul gives them to us. He says, first of all, we understand that our gifts are given to us by Christ. At the end of verse 7, Christ is the one who has apportioned them. In other words, we understand we have been given a sacred trust, if you will, a divine endowment, a spiritual trust fund, that our gifts have come from Jesus Christ himself, our our graces. Now, uh, let's go on. Paul says in verse 8, this is why it says when he ascended on high, he took captives and gave gifts to his people. There it is, gifts. And in verse 10, uh, we have this complicated passage. He descended as the one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole uh, universe. You know what Paul's doing here? Paul is describing, let me back up to verse 8. Paul is describing that the gifts we have been given have come from a triumphant Christ. And he uses a metaphor from the ancient world because ancient kings, after victory, would return home and share the spoils or the gifts with his people. And Paul is saying that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. So, ascended here, descended here, let me jump ahead, descended here doesn't refer to Jesus going to hell. It describes the incarnation and the death of Jesus Christ. Ascended describes Jesus' resurrection, his, his ascension. Now, if you go back to verse 8, we have this word, captives. And honestly, I don't know what that refers to. Uh, commentators tell us it can refer either to demons or can refer to the church. So you're going to have to figure this one out. So here what we have is this marvelous passage. Now you may feel like you're insignificant. But what Paul is telling you here, 
Uh, you have received gifts from the living God. They have come to you from on high. And you, therefore, as you exercise your gifts, step into God's global purposes and glorify Christ. Uh, people in churches who understand this are people who say, you know, I love leading my love life group, or I, I love using my gifts in my life group, or I love teaching seven-year-olds or, or, or four-year-olds, or I'm a student and I love praying for students that don't know Christ. Uh, we're about to start this Bible study, and I, and I just can't wait. It, it's people in the church who say, I am totally committed to being the best employee I possibly can be. You serve here, you serve there. You build up the church, you build up other believers, and together we reach the world. Uh, people that say this, people that think this way, people that understand their gifts are not people that sit on the sidelines. Frankly, they're not people that complain. Man, they're busy because they know they have received both serving or saving and serving grace, and they love sharing it. The second characteristic of Healthy churches in this context of diversity is not only, not only do we understand our gifts come from Christ and the dignity involved in that, but leaders in the church equip. Now, this is verses 11 and 12. And here we have a description of some of the leaders in the church, and here we have their responsibility to equip God's people for works of service. In other words, leaders see themselves as servants uh, who take, for starters, the ministry of the Word seriously. Paul will tell us in Ephesians chapter 6 that the Bible is the sword of the Spirit. So here at Wheaton Bible Church, we take the ministry of the Word super seriously. Uh, but uh, leaders of serve, not just by the teaching of God's Word, but by loving God's people. Uh, Interestingly enough, the word equip here is translated other places in the Bible as mending nets, as setting bones. So leaders love people, they mend their nets, they set their bones. They're shepherds, they're, they're compassionate. Uh, leaders know that the church isn't a show. It's not about fame and fortune, but equipping God's people. I happen to think if verse 12 meets, means anything, and here I'm speaking personally, it means the church is not about me, it's about you. You, the people. And then we see test three, members serve. This is the beginning of verse 12. We're back to the word equip. Now, if you go back two chapters to chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul famously says, we are God's handiwork, workmanship, poem. We are God's workmanship, Paul says, and he continues created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared in advance for us to do, to live out. 
to execute. Now, what's amazing about that verse in chapter 2 and, and verse 10 is that Paul tells us that these good works, and we have works in chapter 2 and verse 10, and the word works here in, in our passage, these works are so important to God uh, that they were planned before the foundation of the world. And here in verse 12, what Paul adds is that the center of these works are works of service in and through the local church, in and through Wheaton Bible Church. In other words, you don't go to church, you are the church. Look at how Paul Tripp puts it. But Ephesians 4 propels us beyond a life consumed by personal happiness and achievement. Your life is much bigger than a good job. An understanding spouse, non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively shaping them into his likeness. And he wants you to be a part of those works of service. Let's go on to the last habit. Healthy churches, extraordinary churches, great churches are characterized by deeply committed followers of Christ who are committed to their own personal spiritual maturity. Now this is the last section, beginning in verse 13 through verse 16. But I want to look just at two words in verse 13. We become mature. Paul uses the word maturity again in verse 15. Now, in my study of this passage over the years, there's something I completely missed that others have pointed out, and I have found it really helpful, is what this is suggesting is that all of us as believers in Christ are somewhat spiritually immature. We are immature in this area, mature in this area. Some of us as brand new Christians are are generally immature. Some of us that have been walking with the Lord forever are are, are more mature, but we all have pockets of immaturity. This verse assumes that, and then Paul says it explicitly in the next verse. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. And he goes on to talk about deceitful people. In other words, there's a paradox to the spiritual life. We who experience the life of God in us understand that it began when God produced a spiritual baby. And like babies, I want to suggest we are, all, we are all, at different points of time, in different areas, not discerning. Like a baby, we don't know what's healthy or unhealthy. We often don't know good teaching from bad teaching because we simply don't know the Bible. And so my point here is you and I cannot be mature. We cannot progress toward maturity unless we are students of the Bible, unless we meditate on the Bible, memorize different verses in the Bible. It's a maturity issue. And like babies, we are also uneven, up and down, unsteady. 
The metaphor here is we get tossed like the waves of the sea toss a boat about. In other words, you and I can have very short spiritual attention spans, right? Uh, We mean well, but we struggle to follow through spiritually. I'm going to pray for you. And we struggle to follow through. We struggle with the disciplines of prayer, of being in specific small community. As I mentioned, the reading of God's Word. So the question is, what in the world do we do to change? And Paul tells us in part at the beginning of the next verse, verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love. It's literally truthing in love. Maturity, in other words, comes to the extent that we immerse ourselves in community that's characterized by two things, truth and love. Because without truth, we're spineless. Without love, we're heartless. And so if I had time, I would take verse 15 and verse 16 together. But what I want to say, and we see it even here, is that what the church needs, or let me say it this way, according to these verses, you need the church. But more fundamentally, more foundationally, you desperately need the church. The church needs you, but you need the church. You need to be engaged with a community of people who are honest with you because you have blind spots and who are supportive of you, be supportive of you because you have insecurities. Now let me conclude with this. This is a long passage. It's a marvelous passage. These habits are heart habits, and they start with us as individuals, but to the extent we make these commitments, we as Wheaton Bible Church will be an extraordinary church. But we're not equal to this. We can't do this on our own. Instead, the key to this is fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's Hebrews chapter 12, who is the author and perfecter, the maturer, if you will, of our faith. And we fix our eyes on Jesus, who alone is full of grace and truth. And I want to suggest to you, to the extent we fix our eyes on Jesus, we will be engaged in the community of the church. And to the extent we are engaged in the community of the church, we will fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at all that you have done for us. All that is ours in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for our church, we pray for our sister churches, that these incredible words, I find them extraordinary words, these extraordinary concepts, this unbelievable, beautiful vision of the church would be increasingly true in our churches in North America. Start with us here at Wheaton Bible Church. Grace us and bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen.